Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage Podcast. I'm Doug Berkey, Executive Director of Mitchell Institute. Here on Aerospace Advantage, we speak with leaders in the DOD, industry, and other subject matter experts to explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. If you like learning about aerospace power, you're in the right place. So to our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here, thanks so much for joining us. And as a reminder, if you like what you hear, please do us a favor and follow our show. And give us a like and leave a comment so we can keep charting the trajectories that matter most to you. Now this week, it's time for The Rendezvous, our monthly installment where the Mitchell team digs into stories that you've seen in the headlines. And this time around, we have General Deptula. Hey, great to be here, Doug. Next, we've got Todd Sledge-Harmer with us. Always great to be here. Now, Sledge is one of our Washington experts who we have here as part of The Rendezvous. And we've also got Henry Heron from our Mitchell Institute Space Power Center of Excellence. Happy to be here. Okay, General Deptula. Last weekend was interesting, in air quotes on that, to say the least, when it came to developments in Ukraine and Russia. And I think it's fair to say that the picture is far from clear when it comes to Wagner's actions in Russia in the fallout. But what's your take so far? I tell you, Doug, as most people understand, there's a lot to discuss on this issue, and the media is full of speculation. As you state, the real picture is far from clear. But what we can garner are some insights from Putin's latest comments yesterday about the Wagner mutiny. Here are the points from, or a summary of the key points that he made from his remarks. First, he made the point that Wagner leadership are traitors. Putin condemned the organizers of the armed revolt for their criminal actions that weaken Russia in the face of external threats and claim has led to internal divisions. He did admit internal divisions, but appears to be doubling down on Prigozhin without naming him. Two, it's all NATO's fault. Putin accused foreign enemies and national traitors of desiring internal conflict within Russia to weaken the nation. He basically compared Prigozhin's action and potential consequences of the mutiny to what NATO would like to have achieved, and that's Russians killing Russians. Three, Russia's military and law enforcement are the best. Putin thanked the military and law enforcement officers for their courage and devotion to duty, stating that they protected Russia from the tragic consequences of the revolt. He implied that the lack of resistance to Wagner marching was intentional and it was pre-planned to avoid confrontation. So Putin is trying to project strength and state that everything went according to plan, which I guess the plan then included mutiny and shooting down of his own aircraft. Okay, then, good plan. Four, precaution is bad, Wagner is not. Putin acknowledged the loyalty and bravery of the majority of the Wagner Group members, whom he described as patriots, manipulated into fighting against their compatriots. And he gives them an off-ramp and separates them from Prigozhin. Five, Wagnerites must choose between formal military and exile. Putin offered members of the Wagner group the opportunity to continue serving in Russia in the Ministry of Defense or other security agencies. He also said that they can opt out to move to Belarus, assuring that his promise would be fulfilled and emphasize the importance of individual choice in this matter. So, 
wrapping it all up, here are the implications of Putin's remarks. Number one, Prigozhin is going down. Number two, Putin looks weak admitting the mutiny, but attempts to explain there was a plan. And I bet the Russian people would believe that because they love conspiracies and deception for that matter. Number three, Putin effectively dismantles the Wagner group. But this is still not the end of it. It it is interesting, though, to note that the proclaimed deal didn't last very long. Bottom line, Putin can't be trusted, and deals are simply not possible with him. So what do you think this means for fighting in Ukraine? First, the Wagner revolt's an opportunity for the Ukrainians from both a military and a psychological warfare perspective, particularly if Wagner's combat-hardened troops remain out of Ukraine. But like I said earlier, there's still a lot of uncertainty here as to just what happened. But Ukraine should be able to capitalize on these events because it does appear that the Wagner group is now going to be out of the fight. Second, one of the known facts is that Putin's still in power, even if he's significantly weakened. So his priority now is staying in power, and he wants to avoid a spark that weakens and turns public opinion against him. Third, NATO needs to be on high alert for the ramifications of what Putin might do to rally the Russian people. It could be disastrous as desperation overcomes logic and rationality. Putin could resort to anything to keep in power, uh, and that may include pulling NATO into the conflict. We certainly don't want that to happen. Finally, and this is the most important, what I've not heard anybody talk about is the fact that the U.S. Congress just put caps on our defense spending. And if you include inflation, that actually results in a decline in U.S. defense spending over the next two years. This is now not the time to be taking risk with our own military. What's going on in Russia definitely confirms that the U.S. military needs a strategy and a corresponding force structure to be able to fight and win in two major wars, one in the Pacific and one in Europe. Our military does not have the capability or capacity to do that today. And frankly, that's part of why Putin proceeded with his invasion of Ukraine. Only when we achieve a two-major war level of capacity will we be able to deter the kind of aggression that Putin took in invading Ukraine in the first place. Now, while all the services lack the capacity today to meet the needs of our national defense strategy, the Air Force is in the worst shape. It's currently the oldest and the smallest in its entire history. And due to current budget limitations, it's planning to get a 1,000 aircraft smaller in the next five years. That's not a recipe for building a strong, capable force that can either deter aggression or fight and win if deterrence fails. So in order to achieve our current national defense strategy, this situation needs to be corrected, not just for the benefit of the Air Force, but for the entire military as there's no joint force operation that can be conducted without some element of the Air Force being involved. So, Sledge, does this change the calculus on the Hill for support or providing Ukraine? There are a segment of members who are skeptical, and does this give some extra thrust to the cause of continuing the flow of supplies? I don't really think it changes any minds. I think people have decided they're either going to be in favor or opposed to it. But it certainly does present an operational opportunity, and I use the term operational on purpose. I do think those that support additional aid to Ukraine are going to use this 
window of opportunity to push another round of funding. And in fact, if you look at what's come out of both the House and Senate Armed Services Committee, they authorize an additional $300 million in the National Defense Authorization Act. But the same questions that I've raised on this podcast in previous months still remain. What is our political objective? What does victory look like? What are we trying to accomplish strategically? Unless you answer those questions, you can't determine what your strategy and then what your proper level of resourcing ought to be. But I think the bottom line is that there, we have an opening now based on the confusion on the ground to make a strategic impact. It's just a choice of whether or not we close that window or we climb in. But it's also important to note that anything that Congress does now in the near term will not affect the fight for months. So we may have missed our opportunity. Now, that's a really good point. You know, it's also been busy on the Hill in a number of other areas. You've got the House Appropriations Defense Subcommittee plus the Senate House Armed Services Committee is holding markups. So, Sledge, let's hit the highlights if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. And the last two weeks have been really busy. Things are moving quickly. I think it's important, though, first to recap what the, the debt ceiling budget agreement did. It essentially capped the top line for defense spending at $886 billion dollars. And that was a starting point for all of the defense oversight committees to mark their respective legislations. First, let's talk about the policy bill. So the National Defense Authorization Act, both the House and the Senate marked their respective bills to that $886 billion top line number that was outlined in the debt deal. There are some fundamental differences between the policy riders there, a lot of contentious personnel policy issues that were approved in the House version of the bill. And we do expect that bill to go on the floor of the House the week of the 10th of July. So probably 12, 13, and 14 July is when that bill will be on the floor. Over on the Senate side, there were a lot fewer personal issues that obviously they're going to have to reconcile the differences during conference there. And I have not heard anything yet. It is possible that bill will go to the Senate floor sometime in July, but that would be very optimistic. Regardless, The August recess is going to present an opportunity for the staff to start working out some of the rough edges between the two bills so they can do an informal conference. So when Congress does come back after the August recess, they can start working on that. Moving along to the appropriators, um, and this is not exactly an apples-to-apples comparison here because of the jurisdiction of the various committees, but the House Appropriations Committee marked their bill for defense to $826 billion dollars. And that seems significantly less, but that bill does not include uh, approximately $32 billion for the national security activities of the Department of Energy and another $17.5 billion in military construction. So if you add all those together, it's still significantly less than what the authorizers mark to, but that is $15 billion among friends is a lot of money. The Senate has not marked up their defense bill yet. They do have the 302B numbers. Those are the top-line numbers, and they plan on marking to $823 billion, which is even less than what the House is marking to. So again, that's significantly less money being appropriated than authorized. But I think if you're going to look forward to the outlook, we're running out of time in FY23 to get the bills done. And part of the agreement in that debt ceiling agreement was If Congress does not pass all 12 appropriations bills by the 1st of January, there's an automatic 1% cut to all discretionary spending. So there is a little bit of a sort of Damocles there dangling over the Congress to do something. But I'm going to go out on a limb once again and make a bold prediction that FY24 is going to start under a continuing resolution, and we'll see what happens from there. Gutsy move. Very gutsy. 
Okay, I want to jump in about the International Guard's efforts on the Hill when it comes to modernization. We've talked about this a lot recently, and it's important. But bottom line, on the House side, House Armed Services Committee, Congressman Bacon introduced and and the committee adopted an amendment that directs a report looking at Air National Guard fighter capitalization. And it prohibits the termination of fighter flying missions until 180 days after the report is delivered to Congress. And it doesn't prohibit divesting older aircraft. It's more about the flying mission. One thing people are looking at is temporary fleet leveling to keep units open, and that really means spreading aircraft amongst existing units and running them all a little thinner. You can't do that forever. It really messes things up, but it is a bridge option to not sunset units. The Air Force is already looking at that for its Strike Eagle fleet potentially. Whatever the solution that's implemented, it's important to note that capacity matters, people matter, experience matters, so we've got to get through this. Okay, I want to switch gears a little bit here. Henry, what do you take away from the markups from a space perspective? Let's start with HASC. Two amendments stand out, the creation of a Space National Guard and then establishing a National Space Intelligence Center. Give us some context. Okay, thank you. I'll start with the Space National Guard element. Right now, we're looking at 16 units that are in the Air National Guard that are conducting a space mission. But these units are conducting a mission that no longer aligned to the Air Force mission. So the lines of authority just don't match up. The move here is not to try and create guard units in all of the states. It's really about moving those units that already exist, already conducting that mission. And some folks might say, hey, this isn't that big of a deal. We're able to work through this. But that's easier said in peacetime, right? When you go to crisis, General Deptula was talking a few minutes ago about what happens when bad things start happening. That's when those lines of authority become really important. And confusion at a time like that is is can be catastrophic. So it really needs to be cleaned up. So that I think that's a move in the right direction. When you look at the National Space Intelligence Center, those of us that are in the military working with intel professionals, we work with intel professionals that are steeped over their career in certain domains, right? We Folks are smart on fighters and bombers and IADs, and we go to them to help us understand that problem set. But we don't have that in space, right? Space has been used for the last few decades to support understanding the terrestrial fight, And we need to build up that cadre of Intel smart folks that understand the space domain, understand adversary space capabilities, and how we can counter those. Having an Intel officer go through a single assignment working space is just not going to be sufficient. And so I think this center can help build that cadre of experts that are going to be needed as we move forward. Okay, Henry, what about SASC? I think there's some language to codify the Space Force's role when it comes to ground and air moving target indicators versus that of the intelligence community. Talk to us about that. So today, those capabilities really reside within JSTARS and AWACS, uh, which are going to be going away here pretty soon. And they're really not tactical ISR platforms. They're tactical command and control platforms. And that's really where the focus needs to reside with this conversation. MTI used to feed tactical command and control. And that's what combatant commanders need. They need air battle managers, not intel analysts, that can get the feeds that are needed so that they can help make decisions in seconds or minutes when they're at the front edge of the fight. The data will still flow to the Intel folks, and they can build Intel products that will help build understanding over days and weeks and months. But at the forward edge of the fight, it's about tactical command and control, and so this decision supports that. Folks, this is a topic that I've had real-world experience in from two wars. First is the guy who designed and constructed the master air attack plans for the Desert Storm Air Campaign in 1991. 
And second is the command as the commander of the Air and Space Operations Center for the opening stages of Operation Enduring Freedom, our response in Afghanistan to the Al-Qaeda attacks against the U.S. In both cases, the military operational planners did not get timely information from our extensive overhead ISR satellite constellations due to the fact that they were controlled and tasked by the intelligence community. The day after the opening attacks on Iraq in 1991, I received absolutely zero battle damage assessment from national overhead imagery. Zero. To get information from them required going through a Byzantine set of procedures that are stacked against the operational planners. Now, while those procedures have improved somewhat in the ensuing 30-plus years, the in-game result is the same. Untimely information for the warfighters from our current intelligence community architecture. And that will be particularly the case with AMTI and GMTI when it moves into space. The Space Force is the appropriate service to have oversight, development, and acquisition authority of these systems. The only way to fix this issue is for the combatant commanders to have direct tasking authority of space-based AMTI and GMTI, period, dot. During real-world operations, tactical control of these assets needs to be assigned to the respective combatant commanders involved in the contingency requiring them. And I feel extraordinarily strong about this. And unfortunately, there are interseen negotiations going on with the intelligence community. And oh, by the way, I include the HIPSI and the SISTI as part of that definition of the intelligence community. And a lot of their rationale is simply based on holding and retaining power. And it is going to undercut our ability to fight and win in future wars. So we got to get this right. No, sir, I agree. The mission's a mission, and it's crazy that we're looking at that. So I'm glad the committee rolled in there. Okay, one last space question. Another interesting point I noticed is tied to commercial space launch on Space Force's bases. The Senate Armed Services Committee is pursuing regulations when it comes to cost reimbursements for commercial entities conducting space launches on Space Force bases. So, Henry, why does this matter? How will it help the Space Force supporting commercial launches? Well, as you mentioned, the Space Force operates these ranges, and those ranges include the launch pads that are used to conduct launch operations. And and they have terrific partnerships with commercial entities to support commercial launches, and they have for some time. But every time one of those launches takes place, that pad, those pads that are used, are damaged in some way. They have to be repaired. They have to be refurbished to set up for the next launch. And there's a cost associated with that. So when you look at having the commercial entities providing reimbursement to help uh, pay for those costs to refurbish those pads, obviously that lessens the burden on the Space Force itself. And potentially down the road, you're going to see opportunities where Space Force may actually be able to support additional launches because they don't have to pick and choose when they do the repairs and the, because the funding is there to support that. 
That's awesome. And yeah, I think we know a little bit about pad repair considering a recent very large rocket launch. No, I appreciate that. So Sledge, where does that leave us? You know, what are the major issues that you think will have to be settled in conference between the committees? I haven't seen the exact legislative text out of the SASC yet, so it's hard to say exactly. As I mentioned earlier, I know there are going to be a lot of personal issues that need to be resolved and reconciled. The House bill contained a lot of policy riders that weren't in the Senate, so those are going to have to be worked out. There's also, and this is more of on the margins, differences between force structure, primarily retirements. General Deptula mentioned the aircraft across the fight up there, but there's also significant numbers of ships that the Navy's trying to retire. Those are going to have to be worked out. And there's a few other programs there. One thing that did catch my eye just out of media uh, reporting was that the Senate is actually taking the initial steps to study whether or not we need to have an independent cyber force. And that was not in the House bill. So that'll be really interesting to see how that plays out and goes back and forth. General Deptula, what were the major themes you took from the markup so far? Doug, first, divest to invest is not a trusted approach by the Hill. Notice that the only things Congress are allowed to be retired are Air Force aircraft with direct replacements. A case in point are the KC-135s and the KC-10s. Their retirements were held up until the KC-46 came on board. Same things happening for the fighters. So we now have F-35s showing up in operational quantities and the F-15EX showing up. So Congress is finally allowing some of our older fighters to be divested, to be replaced by new ones. Take note, however, there is significant angst on the size of the Air Force going forward. As many of you are aware, the Air Force, from a force structure perspective, is dramatically shrinking. So you see the Senate Armed Services Committee directing a fighter modernization flight plan and the House insisting on an Air National Guard plan for its fighters to assure that we stop the decline in the face of growing threats. Now, all of this reflects the, the fact that we currently have a defense strategy that's driven by budgets instead of requesting budgets to support our defense strategy. How does one deter Russian aggression in Europe and Chinese aggression in the Pacific with a force structure that's questionable to deal with even only one major regional contingency. Now, on the other hand, there's still strong support for recapitalization of our nuclear forces in Triad. The sea launch cruise missile got back into the language, but we still need to work out some of the fixed-price contracts that were established on systems like the B-21 Raider before inflation exploded. Finally, the budget caps are really going to mess up the ability to get elasticity back into the defense industrial base. These caps, as all have mentioned, actually result in defense budget declines over the next two years, and there will be little, if any, money available to significantly ramp up our weapons production facilities that are so inadequate to support our defense strategy. Other than that, everything's cool. 
Okay, Sledge, you hit upon it earlier, but any other things you want to say on the budget caps, how they relate to the top lines that are passed? And I hear folks in the Senate are pushing for a defense supplemental, and I don't think that's going to be very popular in the House. So your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think there's universal consensus on the Hill that the top line numbers for defense spending set by the debt ceiling agreement are too low. And as General Deptula mentioned earlier, whether it's deterring Russia and Europe or China and the Pacific, the level of resources does not match the security environment. In fact, there are, as you mentioned, Doug, senior members of the Senate to include appropriators that are already calling for a supplemental funding package to counter China. I think most of the defense hawks in the House are also doing that. And there's a small minority of people, the fiscal hawks, primarily the House Freedom Caucus, that will make it very difficult for Speaker McCarthy to pass anything, uh, get to 218 votes on a supplemental that's not supported by both parties. Just keep your eyes peeled. We're entering the Atlantic hurricane season as well as the Western wildfire season. And I think the most likely scenario is that there's going to be some type of a natural disaster supplemental and additional Ukraine funding or additional defense supplemental will be tacked onto that. And that's going to make it must pass legislation. So I, I think to answer your question, there's not enough for defense there is a plan to get a supplemental, and I think it'll ride along on a natural disaster package. Now, that's interesting. I really appreciate that. So, General Deptula, Mitchell released three major reports in the last few days. Sleep will come next week. Uh, so give us uh, the wave top takeaways. Thanks for that question, Doug. As we are so busy producing products, and I don't have to tell you that, we sometimes don't take the time to reflect on their impact and significance. The three that we've recently published, all in one week, by the way, are incredible due to the insights they provide and are must-reading for any and all defense professionals. First up is bolstering Arctic domain awareness to deter air and missile threats to the homeland. The Arctic is the preeminent staging ground today for adversary missile attacks because it's the most direct route from either Moscow or Beijing to Washington, D.C., and both Russia and China are subsequently taking steps to increase their foothold in the Arctic. The paper describes how bolstering deterrence against conventional air and missile threats in the Arctic starts by improving U.S. ally and partner domain awareness and information dominance capabilities. Now, the second paper we released this past Monday is entitled Building U.S. Space Force Counterspace Capabilities, an Imperative for America's Defense. In it, we argue that the Space Force and U.S. Space Command should field counterspace weapons and related capabilities to ensure space superiority in the future. It also explains some of the Chief of Space Operations' lines of effort that are absolutely critical to his plans for the Space Force way ahead. Finally, the third paper is accelerating fifth generation air power, bringing capability and capacity to the merge. The author is Mr. Doug Berkey, who's with us today, the executive director of the Mitchell Institute, and he's done a magnificent job in explaining just what the F-35 TR-3 Block 4 aircraft actually is. And it is a bit confusing. I'm going to hand it over to Doug here in a minute to expand on his paper. But the bottom line is that if you want to be up to speed on three of the most critical issues in defense today, these three papers do a spectacular job in doing that and are well worth your time to read. So over to you, Doug, to expand a bit on your paper. 
No, sir, I appreciate it. And I also want to point out that General Costella, it was very helpful and important on that, as well as Eric Gunzinger and Aiden Poling could have done it without them. So there are two main key themes with the report. First off, we document the capacity and capability challenges facing the Air Force Fighter Force. And then we also talk about how F-35s are going to flow in as part of the solution, especially with the TR-3 and Block 4 upgrades that are really on deck right now, but they're really confusing. So bottom line, capacity, we bought nearly 200 fighters per year in the 80s. That was 40 years ago. They're worn out, and they're falling off a cliff. So we had a plan to buy F-22s and F-35s to backfill them, but we ended F-22 production in 2009 at just 186 airframes. The F-35s has never hit planned production rates, so we need to boost production to allow for recapitalization. Otherwise, units are just going to sunset for want of airworthy aircraft. COCOM demands aren't going down anytime soon, and so we really got to get on that. And you do not have joint power without competent Air Force fighter aviation. Now, to the F-35 specifically, they're coming off the line with a new central processor that's way more powerful. And so that's called Technology Refresh 3. Think about like getting a new iPhone that's got way more computational power and all that, and it empowers a new wave of software updates called Block 4. And that's going to be delivered over the next several years. It's kind of a rolling series of updates, again, like cell phone, like apps you get and all that. It really empowers better sensing, improved target tracking, a far broader range of weapons that it can carry, a whole lot more. It fundamentally takes the jet to an entirely new level. The Air Force in particular has put their foot down and said they have to have this model. It's key to the China fight and everything else. So we really tried to define it. It's very classified and all of that. And so we tried to take a wave top approach to make sense of it. And so the reports are on the website. Take a look. But again, sir, I appreciate the compliment there. And it's something that I think is really important. And I want to turn this one over to you on fighter, sir. Fighter production lines right now, the F-15EX and F-35, both lines are having issues. Thoughts on it? First, my compliments to the Air Force programmers for getting procurement of both of these aircraft to 72 in FY24. Uh, that 72 is made up of 48 F-35s and 24 F-15EXs. Second, just to remind our audience, the F-16 and the F-18 both had similar issues when they were in development as well. The issues with the F-35 have been resolved to date and will continue to be in the future. And finally, if the Air Force is going to add F-15EX to their stable, then they need to buy that line out as fast as possible so that it can then double down on the current rate of F-35 production as fast as possible. I want to thank everybody for their time today. It's been great catching up. And General Deptula, Sludge, Henry, it's been great. And I also want to wish you guys happy 4th of July. Yeah, same to you, Doug. Happy 4th of July. Always a pleasure. Appreciate the opportunity. Take care, guys. And with that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. And if you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas that you think we should explore further. And as always, you can join the conversation by following Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn. And you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time.